0: Many people think that all religions, including Christianity, must be taken on faith because there is no evidence for things like God's existence. But they are sadly mistaken. Arguments for God's existence have been around for over a thousand years in Western philosophy, and in this episode, I'm going to explain and defend an argument for God's existence called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. I will not only explain how the argument is defended, but I will also discuss some objections to it and how they can be answered. So stick around and find out exactly why the universe must have a beginning and God must be the cause of that beginning. Back everyone. In this uh, lecture, I am going to be talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. In the last lecture, we talked about uh, cosmological arguments in general, and um, I talked about uh, several arguments. One of them being the Kalam, and I told you that in, in the next one, I was going to be covering the Kalam in detail, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, in this video, I'm just gonna I'm going to Say just a little bit about the, how you know the, the background of the Kalam, and then I'm going to show you how it's defended, and then I'll briefly talk about some objections at the end. Uh, this is going to be one of the longest uh, lectures just because I'm trying to cover most of my bases. Um, having said all that, since this is a uh, for beginners, um, there's going to be a lot. Uh, that I'm going to not mention. So maybe in a future lecture after this series is over, I can uh, go more detailed into the Kalam, bring all the science up to date. Uh, But in this one, it's just going to be a really basic breakdown of the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, But if you're new to this argument, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's definitely one of my favorites. Even though I like Thomas Aquinas um, in philosophy and and his... uh, five ways are, are very different from the Kalam, as I discussed in the last video, in the last lecture. Um, I, I really like the Kalam. And also, it's really easy to remember. Uh, it's really easy to remember and explain to people in the streets. I mean, you, you still need a few minutes to say it, but you don't have to explain to them some medieval metaphysics to get them to understand it. So, uh, anyways, um, in in this lecture... so. In the, in the cosmological lecture, I introduced you to John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. It's kind of our um, Bible verse for these couple lectures. So John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Um, and if you are interested in hearing me explain that briefly, I did that in the last lecture On cosmological arguments. Um, In each of these, I give you some questions for reflection at the beginning and and, uh, I uh, re-mention them at the end. And uh, my questions for reflection for this lecture are, which reason for believing the universe began did you find the most compelling? So just something to to think about and maybe uh, um, answer towards the end. Another one you can be thinking about during this lecture is, if Big Bang cosmology were proven false, would that prove the Kalam argument false? Also, and I'll be mentioning, um, I'll try, I'll be trying to make this point that will answer that for you. Uh, so, the last question is if it were somehow proven that Big Bang cosmology is true and all time and space had a beginning, do you think it would take more faith to believe the beginning was caused or had no cause? Uh, why or why not? So I'll bring those back up here towards the end, and um, and you can be thinking about those and, and maybe responding to those. Okay, so I mentioned this briefly in the last lecture on cosmological arguments. Uh, I, I gave just a, a smidge of background on the argument, so I'll just say just a little bit more. Um, but the Kalam cosmological argument, right? We said it comes from Al-Ghazali. Uh, the word Kalam actually is Arabic for speech, so it literally means speech, um, but it can be defined as natural theology or philosophical theism, okay? And and the reason why that is is because uh, in medieval times, um, you had different schools of thought, and there was a Kalam school, there was a falsafa school, but uh, the reason why you can call Kalam uh, natural theology or philosophical theism is because it, there was a school called the Kalam school. So that's, even though it literally means speech, that's what it basically is just an Arabic word for natural theology. And I think I've explained before in this series that natural theology, you know, usually when you think of theology, it's uh, probably a systematic theology, and that's when theologians assume, assuming that the Bible is true, they try to learn everything they can about God by putting all the, uh, by uh, reading scripture and, and trying to figure things out about God. Uh, well, the, uh, the Bible is considered to be special revelation. Um, the world, the physical, our physical universe and everything in it, um, you can use philosophy to observe the world and draw conclusions about God, Okay. And when you just use philosophy to learn about God, that's called natural theology because you're just using nature to learn about God and not necessarily some kind of special revelation like like the Bible. Uh, But anyways, so we said Al-Ghazali is the um, Muslim, uh, Persian, uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, law, a a jurist, uh, also known as a uh, law expert and mystic. He is the one who, uh, in, who argued for an earlier version of the Kalam argument, and he is the inspiration for the uh, modern version. You know, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, science in this, and obviously he didn't make some of those arguments, but these arguments have been tacked on to his, co- his Kalam argument as science has uh, come to learn things about the universe that make us think uh, uh, support the idea that the universe had a beginning. So, um, yeah, and I mentioned in the last video that around al-Ghazali's time, uh, uh, Greek philosophy was influencing the Muslim world, and the Greeks didn't believe that the world had a beginning. So some uh, Muslims were beginning to argue that the universe didn't have a beginning, and that obviously uh, went against uh, uh, Islamic teaching, and al-Ghazali was trying to argue against that, so he comes up with philosophical arguments to show uh, or to conclude that the universe had a beginning and therefore must have a cause. Okay, so that's a bit of background on this argument, and um, and here are the uh, two premises and the conclusion. Now, this formulation is uh, is is how it's is not exactly how you know um, Al Ghazali worded it, but this is how it's usually defended today in contemporary times. Got two premises and a conclusion. Premise one says whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, uh, premise two says the universe began to exist, and the conclusion is therefore the universe has a cause. Okay, it's a really simple formulation, really easy to memorize and and use on the street. Um, it is it is a valid, it is a logical argument. Um, if you assume that premise, uh, that the two premises are true, the conclusion wouldn't necessarily follow. You know, the, premise one is just saying that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. And if the universe begins to exist and premise one is true, then that would necessarily mean that uh, the universe would have a cause, right? And um, like I said in the last video, I mean, I kind of, I, I did give, uh, you tips uh, on what this entails, but like I said in the last video, three, the conclusion being three, therefore the universe has a cause, might sound really underwhelming, like okay uh, great, the universe has a cause, so I thought you were gonna give me a, an argument for God's existence. But uh, hang on to, to the end and you will see whenever we work through the defense of premise one and premise two, um, the the reasoning that we use will have logical implications for what the cause must be like. And whenever you look at these implications and you start to make a list of all the things the cause must be like, it starts to look a lot like God, okay? And and you'll see that when we get there. Now, one thing I like to do before moving forward is just get something out of the way because there is a really common misconception with premise one. So, um, you know, I've already briefly discussed that this argument is valid. It is logical. So the next steps to defending it is is just showing the premises are true. And if the premises are true, then the conclusion would necessarily follow. So I'm about to show you how premise one is defended. But I would just say, um, yeah, so with premise one, though, before I start showing you how it's defended, there is a common uh, objection to premise one where people will say, okay, well, if everything that exists has a cause, then what caused God? Your conclusion says that, that God must be the cause of the universe, but your own premise says that everything has a cause. So what caused God? You know, um, this Your argument doesn't work. It goes to a beginning and then says God did that, but it needs something to cause God. Now, that is a common misconception, and it's important to focus on the fact that premise one is not saying everything that exists has a cause. Premise one is saying whatever begins to exist has a cause, okay? You just don't want to make the mistake of, uh, of letting someone uh, tell you that if everything exists has a cause, then what, did, what caused God? Because uh, God doesn't have a beginning, and, and I'll show you that it, uh, God being eternal and not having a cause isn't just something that we're making up like we're doing the ontological argument and just saying that God by definition exists. God's eternality will be a conclusion of this argument. So uh, the fact that God would have to be eternal would mean that God wouldn't have a cause. So but anyways I'm getting ahead of myself. Just remember that this uh, premise is saying that whatever begins to exist has a cause. It's not saying that everything has a cause. Okay? But let's move on uh, to a defense of premise one. So Premise one is saying that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, now, uh, one book that I recommend if you want to dig deeper into the Kalam argument, um, I well, I highly recommend uh, most of um, uh, uh, of, the, of this author on in apologetics, especially on the Kalam argument. But uh, William Lane Craig is a philosopher uh, who is actually really famous for defending this argument and kind of... Um, ushering in a revival of, of people talking about this, both in philosophy and science. But William Lane Craig has written several books. Um, one is On Guard. Um, uh, On Guard by William Lane Craig is an apologetics book. It talks about the Kalam argument, among many other things. Um, but that's a re- that's a beginner's uh, guide to the Kalam argument. He's also written a book called Reasonable Faith. And uh, in that one, it's more of an intermediate um take on it. So I would recommend either one of those if you want to dig deeper into the clomb. Now, having said that, um, these three, uh, things here that I, I have are basically, uh, what William Lane Craig talks about when he defends premise one. So one thing he says is that premise one is common sense. Um, now I'll, I'll just say that usually saying that common sense, uh, usually saying that something is common sense is not a good way to defend an argument. Um, because what one person might think is common sense, another person might not think is common sense. But he's not—he's not saying it in that sense of the word, though. When he says that uh, the kalam uh, i am sorry—when he says premise one is uh, is common sense, he means that in the sense that every single day of your life, you probably. Uh, well, let's just say that almost every single day of your life, you probably see things come into existence, whether it's uh, the sandwich that you made or uh, or, or many other things. We, we see it rain. Uh, we see fires begin. Um, we turn on the light to, to go uh, get ready in the morning, right? And that light wasn't there a second ago. We see things begin to exist almost every day of our life, and every time we see something begin to exist, it has a cause. So, um, he argues that it's common sense. You know, if something—not to mention you know—if something doesn't exist because it begins to exist, it can't cause itself. So, it's it's a really simple notion to say this: um, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, Another thing he points out is that it's unscientific to oppose premise one. If you want to deny premise one that whatever begins to exist has a cause, um, you are going to have to affirm that there could be something that began to exist with no cause whatsoever. Uh, and a lot of times, not, not all the time, I, you know, I've met all sorts of people uh, when, I've, I went, when I'm at work and when I've done apologetics and, and evangelism settings. Um, so I don't want to just pigeonhole every, every non-believer as some kind of, uh, science, um, uh, guru, but a lot of, t- a lot of times I would say, um, a-, a lot of people that don't believe in God do usually have a high view of science, right? There, um, that a good number of them say that, you know, that reason wins out over, uh, religion, um, because, you know, un- unfortunately, a lot of times in our culture, people think that you have to just take religion completely on faith with no evidence. But anyways, um, if, someone, if someone doesn't want to say that God exists, a lot of times they are going to be someone who has a high view of science. Now, uh, so, so it is good to emphasize, if you're talking to somebody about this, if they want to deny premise one, say, well, I think it's actually really unscientific to oppose premise one uh, because that would mean that, you know, say you're doing science or you're just a layperson, either way, um, if you believe that things can come into existence with no cause, really, that is kind of a science killer. It's a science stopper because the scientist would be allowed to say, well, it's possible that things just begin without any cause whatsoever. So um, I don't really want to look further into this. I'm just going to assume or I'm just going to conclude that this this uh, phenomena that I just viewed had no cause whatsoever, right? It it's really is unscientific to to start to think that causes can, uh, ex- something can begin to exist without a cause whatsoever. Uh, one thing, now William Lane Craig, at least in, in his um, in On Guard and, and books like that uh, that don't give a, a huge treatment on it, he doesn't really go much further. He usually just will say it's common sense and it's unscientific to oppose premise one. Uh, I like to go just a little bit further and talk about how it. Um, in a, if you look at it a certain way, opposing premise one would entail a contradiction, okay? And to do this, I use a uh, something called the Principle of Sufficient Reason, okay? Um now, I just want to mention that the principle of sufficient reason isn't something in philosophy that is just ironclad and everyone holds to. Uh, you, as reasonable as it sounds, um, it has been debated, okay? Um, but I just use it to, to explain that it really does seem to be one of two ways, okay? Now, t- to give you the definition here, the principle of sufficient reason uh, was something coined by uh, Gottfried Leibniz, And it's roughly the idea that for any positive state of affairs, there is an adequate explanation for why that state of affairs exists, okay? Um, That's a kind of a technical definition, but really what the principle of sufficient reason says is that everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. And that explanation is either going to be some external cause, something that caused that thing to exist, or the explanation is going to be internal. Uh, um, for example, um, something is just going to exist of its own nature. So you either have something that exists of its own nature, or you have things that were a uh, cause to exist. So everything has an explanation for its existence. Uh, I'm not saying everything has a cause for its existence. I'm saying everything has an explanation for its existence. Okay, um, And what this entails is that you either have contingent things or necessary things. A contingent thing is a being whose existence depends on something outside itself such that neither its existence nor its non-existence is logically necessary. That's our, uh, our technical term. Basically, something that's contingent needed, needs a cause outside of itself for it to begin to exist. Let's just say that. A contingent thing isn't a necessary thing. Now, whenever I talk about necessary things, though, uh, you might be thinking, okay, well... Uh, I've heard this objection before, where someone says, "Well, it sounds like you're just saying there's things that aren't God, and then there's God, <laughs> because what else but God is is isn't is something that it just necessarily exists." It sounds like you're just kind of starting to define God into existence here. Now, the thing is, um, philosophers uh, through throughout the centuries have um, argued that there are some things that just exist of their own nature, okay? And uh, I wonder, uh, you know, if you're a beginner to this argument, you might not be aware of this, if you're a beginner to philosophy as well. Uh, but just to give you an example, so um, abstract objects are an example of, of things that some philosophers have argued just exist of their own nature. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too far into that debate, but um, like numbers, some people think that uh, numbers just exist of their own nature, you know. And, and for example, so say say I hold up my uh, say I hold up a pen and my cell phone. I've got two objects in front of me. Now, um, we we wouldn't want to say that I just created the number two, right? Um, the number two existed before I held up two objects in front of myself. The the number two is just a concept I abstracted from those two objects. But the number two itself, some uh, philosophers argue that it's just something that just exists, uh, um, and, and and you know that, that debate goes all the way back to ancient Greece over universals and all and 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 all that. But um, anyways, I just wanted to mention that there's other things besides God that are thought to be necessary. Now, bringing all this back to the to premise one, uh, the problem with um, the problem with saying that premise one is false. Denying premise one is that, like I said before, if you if you deny premise one, you have to say that you'd have to affirm that, you don't have to affirm that all things begin to exist without cause, but you at least need to affirm that at least one thing began or at least one thing could begin to exist without a cause, okay? But the problem with that is that given the uh, principle of sufficient reason, and you know, and I don't don't see any two ways about it. Either something exists of its own nature, or something was caused to exist. Right? Uh, I mean, if you can think of a third option, then then uh, put it in the comments or or, or send me an email. <laughs> Let me know. But um, either something exists of its own nature; it's a necessary thing, or it needed a cause outside itself for it to begin to exist. That'd be a contingent thing. Okay? Um, like in like we said with our definition there. Now if when you look at premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause, right? If something begins to exist, then it's definitely going to be contingent. But if you deny premise one, you are basically saying some contingent thing doesn't need a cause for, uh, doesn't need a cause outside itself for existence, right? Doesn't have a cause, but a contingent thing is something that necessarily needs something uh, outside itself to begin to exist, right? Because it doesn't have its cause for its existence within its own nature. So, basically, if you deny premise one, you are saying that there is some contingent thing that doesn't need a cause outside itself. In other words, there is something that needs a cause outside itself to begin to exist that doesn't have a cause outside itself to begin to exist. So, it's basically a, a, a just straight-up contradiction to deny premise one. So, um, again, principle of sufficient reason is something that's been debated, but um, that's just another way of explaining that. Okay, let's move on to, um, but yeah, just to sum up, uh, def- defending premise one, uh, those are three ways to go about it. It's common sense. It's, uh, uh, it is basically, we get more and more evidence for it every day of our life. Uh, number two, it's unscientific to oppose. It would be a science stopper to believe that things could exist for no reason. And 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 the third one is that it, it entails uh, holding to a, a logical contradiction. Uh, now moving on to premise two, though, the universe began to exist. This really, uh, and I mean, premise one—you'd think that uh, no one would really want to deny that—but um, uh, professional philosophers, professional atheists have denied premise one before in the literature, and it and it is something that that. Um, monotheists have had to defend. Um, I've heard people, uh, I've heard people in, in my philosophy classes entertain that premise one is false. Um, so it does happen, but usually people are going to go with premise one and think that's true. Okay. Usually the most time you're going to spend defending this is in premise two, the universe began to exist. And um, so, and this, this does, I mean, you can spend a lot of time on this. You don't have to. You can just mention one of these. But there's generally four different ways that this uh, is defended these days. There's two main philosophical arguments and two main scientific arguments, okay? Um, and I'm going to be mentioning all these in turn. Now, I'll, I like to start with the uh, philosophical evidence, uh, one thing I do want to say is that these all stand alone. Each one of them argues for uh, so premise two is the universe began to exist, right? And uh, each one of these arguments that I'm about to tell you, the two philosophical and the two scientific, they all stand alone. So if you get if you show that one is false, it doesn't necessarily uh, show that premise 2 is false, uh, then you'd have to answer the other three to show, that premise two is false, because these are this is all of the evidence that we're bringing forward to defend premise two. So the first philosophical argument for the beginning of the universe is, um, this is something that Al-Ghazali mentioned in his writings, uh, is uh, his idea that it's impossible to have an actual infinite amount of anything in reality, okay? So, um, and you might be thinking that this is a strange way to argue that the universe had a beginning, Uh, but it's because um, if the universe is, uh, is infinite into the past, then this is going to entail something called an actual infinity. Okay. And, and that's, and that's something I need to talk about. I need to talk about a distinction between an actual infinite and a potential infinite before we can move on. So, an actual infinite amount of something is, uh, is a set of something that has no beginning or an end, right? An actual infinite amount of something, there is no beginning to it, there is no end to it. So if I, had, <laughs> if I had a safe with an actually infinite amount of money in it, there would just be no end to the amount of money I could pull out of this safe. Um, uh, that's a more tangible um, example if you want to think abstractly, you know, uh, they say like the, the, the set of all whole numbers or integers, you know, going starting at zero and going all the way back uh, into the negatives by one, let's say, or going all the way forward by one, uh, that set of all whole numbers is actually infinite. There's no end to it. There's no beginning to it. Okay. And, and just to mention this, an interesting uh, property of actual infinite sets is that uh, any subset of the whole is going to be equal to the whole. So take that actually infinite set of whole numbers. If I took out all of the odd numbers out of the actually infinite set of whole numbers, guess how many uh, odd numbers I'm going to pull out? I'm going to pull out an actually infinite amount of odd numbers. Because it's an actually infinite amount, and you know what? I'm going to have an actually infinite amount of numbers left over, so it's it's sounds weird, but it's just how actually infinite um, um, sets work. Okay, now that's distinct from a potential infinite. A potential infinite is a series that goes on forever but never reaches actual infinity. Okay, and um, so a potential infinite is something like I said it can it it will it could go on for. For, it could be an everlasting set it goes on into the future forever if you want to talk about time um, but it's never going to be actually infinite I usually like to use uh, the count as an example from Sesame Street say that the count is going to begin counting by one uh, to, and, and he's going to try to reach infinity <laughs> uh, so he's going to start counting by one um, and you know he's gonna one two three ha ha ha. Uh, he's gonna keep counting forever, okay? And, and I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna come back to this point here in a second. Whenever I get to the next uh, philosophical argument uh, for the beginning of the universe, but that set that the count would be counting would never reach infinity. So it would be a potential infinite because it would go on forever, but it would never be actually infinite, okay? Um. But really quickly, I like to just kind of brush through this first point uh, because I find the second one more interesting. It's because it has to do with time. Uh, but I do like to point this out this first philosophical argument for, for the beginning of the universe because it, it does show how it does seem like an actual infinite amount of anything in, in reality just can't happen. And I mean like an actually infinite quantity, okay? Um, so the, the, the point that Al-Ghazali made was that it doesn't seem like you can have an actual amount of anything in reality, right? Um, the, the problem is that actual infinities might make sense in the abstract, because I, can, I, can, I might not be able to think of every single number in the set, but I can imagine a set of whole numbers going, having no beginning or end, right? But, but the problem is when you start to apply actual, the concept of an actual infinity to um, reality, The concept quickly becomes absurd. Okay. Um, So, uh, the example that is often used in showing this argument is something called Hilbert's Hotel. Hilbert's Hotel is this hypothetical hotel where you imagine that there's this infinite, actually infinite hotel. There's no beginning and no end to all the rooms. Um, And let's also imagine that Hilbert's Hotel. Is is has no vacancy. Every single room in Hilbert's hotel has uh, a guest in it. Okay, uh, the way they they show the way we show that um, the the concept of an actual infinity is absurd, is that um, the the problem is that Hilbert's hotel has no vacancy, right? But if you think about it, um, what you could like if somebody wants to show up and say, look, I need a room for the night, um, you could, the, the owner of the hotel could just tell, um, everybody from a certain point in the hotel to move down one room, okay? So an infinite number of people are going to move down to the next room, and then that room would have vacancy, and then that person could go into the, to the newly vacant room and check in, um, and and doesn't that seem absurd? The, the the entire hotel, the actually infinite hotel, had no vacancy. And but all the manager had to do was just tell everybody from a certain point to move down one room, okay? And and there's room now that now we can bring it in. And it's and it and it's even more absurd. Like uh, even if, even if an infinite number of people show up to Hilbert's hotel, there's always going to be room. So even though there wasn't room to begin with, even though it was vacant, um, now they're making room for somebody, and the, and it's just uh, and it just seems to be absurd. Yeah, and there's other examples of of uh, to show how an actual infinite can't exist in reality. But like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on this argument because um, I think it, it's I think the next one is is. Uh, is better because it's talking specifically about time now but what this but what this first one is getting at is that um is that it doesn't seem like in reality you can have an actually infinite amount of anything so this would you know this is getting at the fact that if the past is going to be infinite if there's no beginning let's say to the past and to the universe then the past has to be actually infinite okay um, and, and if there can't be an actually infinite amount of anything in reality, then uh, there has to be a beginning. But um, this, this second argument for the beginning, the philosophical argument for the beginning of the universe, I, I find really compelling and really interesting. Okay, so um, this next argument actually is an argument in itself, and it's got two premises and a conclusion. The first premise says an actually infinite collection of things cannot be formed by successive addition. Two, the series of past events is a collection of things formed by successive addition. Three, therefore, the series of past events cannot be actually infinite. Uh, now, you know, that, that sounds maybe a little technical. It's, it's a lot of words. But really, um, premise one says an actually infinite collection of things cannot be formed by successive addition, okay? Okay. And that's really something that we've already pointed out, so we don't have to spend too much time defending that. Uh, going back to my uh, count example from Sesame Street, if Count starts at zero and he starts counting by one, um, I've already mentioned this. He won't ever reach infinity, Willie. Really. You know, there's not going to be some time in the infinite future where he, you know, he's like two gazillion seven hundred you know, whatever, and, and two, and then all of a sudden reach infinity. Ha ha ha. He's never going to, he's never going to reach from that finite number he was at and then take the step to infinity, is he? Because any number that he reaches in this series is there's going to be another number that you could just add one to. Uh, there's going to be that next step up. So he's never going to count to infinity because he is going in a stepwise fashion by successive addition. Okay. So if, if, if his series uh, is going one by one, it's never going to reach infinity, okay? And the, what, the, uh, what the defender, the Kalam, points out in, in premise two, premise two says the series of past events is a collection of things formed by successive addition, right? And, and that's just how time works. Uh, you know, I, I like to use football as, as an example a lot when I talk about the Kalam. Uh, you know, time, everything doesn't happen simultaneously, right, with time. It ha- things happen one after another, just like how the count has to count one through nine before he counts to ten. In football, you, can't, you don't just hike the ball and, and you all of a sudden have a touchdown, right? No, instead you have, to, you have to hike the ball to the quarterback. The quarterback has to take a few steps back, look at his receivers. All while this is happening, the receivers have to go one yard after another down the field and then the quarterback has to throw it while the receiver is still running, and then the receiver has to catch it, and then hopefully run a few more yards, and then and then get a touchdown. It happens one thing after the next. That's how time works. That's how the past works. And uh, but what what this argument is saying is that since the past is formed by successive addition, it can't be actually infinite. Okay. And the main point that it's making is that if the past were actually infinite, then an infinite number of events would need to have happened before you, for example, clicked on this video or downloaded a podcast to even hear me say this. Before I would have ever explained the Kalam to you, there needed to be an actually infinite number of events to have happened. And remember, an actually infinite has no beginning and no end. So if the past happens one after another, it can't be actually infinite. It has to be, it could be, it has to be basically a potential infinite, you know, where maybe it goes on forever, but it has to have a beginning. And and let me break this point down for you. uh, Like I said, I don't know why, but I like to use football analogies. Um, Let's say that... um, Let's say, and I, I guess I, I don't want to date this video too much, um, so I won't mention any one uh, entertainer's name, but let's say that this year, whoever's going to do the Super Bowl halftime show, um, whoever's going to agree to do the Super Bowl halftime show, they come to this entertainer and they say, look, we really want to do something special this year. We want to make this the best Super Bowl halftime show ever. Okay? And what our idea is, is that um, we want you to, to perform an infinite amount of songs before the third quarter begins. And the entertainer's like, wow, that's going to make history. I, I definitely want to do that. I totally agree to this. So let's let's try it. Now, um, okay, so let's say that the Super Bowl begins. They play the first two quarters. And the, you know, we have to wait for the Super Bowl for the excuse me, we have to wait for the halftime show, for the Super Bowl uh, to continue in the third quarter. We have to wait for that halftime show to end. The question is, will we ever get to the third quarter? Will we ever get to enjoy seeing who wins the Super Bowl uh, this year, or, or in the next year? And the answer is no. We never will find out who. Who uh, wins the game? Because since it, um, since the way the songs work, so they have to sing one song after another. They can't sing them all at once. They can't sing an actually infinite amount of songs. They never will. Uh, it, that series of songs at the halftime show will go on into the infinite future without the the uh, third quarter ever beginning. Um, and and that's what and that's what an actually infinite past entails. Okay, a past with no beginning would mean that before today, an actually infinite amount of things had to already happen. Okay, but since today came, we basically know that there had to be a beginning, uh, and that we're and because that's how time works, and that's what this argument is saying. So I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of mind-bending at first whenever you hear it, uh, but basically, it's what it's saying is pick any pick any moment in the past. There still had to be an infinite amount of events that happened before that, and if the past is actually infinite, then we won't be we wouldn't be here today talking about this. But since we are here today talking about this, uh, there had to be a beginning to time. Okay, pretty interesting. I find that uh, really interesting and and personally really compelling. Um, the next couple of uh, of arguments for the beginning of the universe come directly from science. And I find these interesting, although very exhausting, because you have to know a lot of technical science, and you have to keep up to date with the science, because uh, theories of the beginning of the universe, and cosmologies, and, and all that are, are continually being updated. Uh, but anyways, now, having said all this, I just want to give you a disclaimer that I'm not a scientist, so... Um, you know, if you are a professional scientist, you might hear me say a thing or two that, uh, you disagree with, but like I said, this is a beginner's video and I could, I could get a lot more complex than this and mention more. Uh, but since we only have so much time, I'm just going to mention the basics of it. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that most of what I'm going to say isn't going to be all that controversial. Uh, I mean, as, as, controversial as any argument for God's existence can get. So, um, the, so if you are familiar with Big Bang Cosmology, um, I've always found it interesting that uh, some Christians don't, uh, when they, they're a, little, um, they're, uh, they're a little defensive when it comes to Big Bang Cosmology. Some uh, uh, Christians, it's, it seems like, think that uh, Big Bang Cosmology uh, necessarily entails that uh, the universe began for no reason. And that's not true. Big Bang Cosmology doesn't say how uh, the universe began. Now, But having said all that, I'm, I'm saying that, don't take me to be saying that, um, well, it, it's up for debate whether Big Bang Cosmology entails that there was a beginning of the universe or not, okay? But I'm going to be mentioning that. Now, um, but but uh, contemporary defenders of the Kalam argument use Big Bang Cosmology to say that the universe had a beginning. Now, if you're not familiar with it, um, what the big, what Big Bang cosmology um, entails is that the universe began thir- about 13.7 billion years ago from a singularity, okay? And so what, and if, you, if you're if you not familiar with any of this, what happens is, uh, you know, scientists realized that the universe was expanding. Um, and this is relatively recently in the last century or so and um when they realized that the universe was expanding basically what they did was they rewound the, they rewound the clock now the estimate of the beginning of the universe has changed over the years uh gone up or down give or take and there's still a bit of uh there's still an error bar there um but basically they rewound the clock and they discovered that they think that all that uh, since it's expanding now, if you rewind back into the past, it comes all comes to a point, and that point is what they call a singularity. Now, um, yeah, and just to give you some background, um, it, it 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 all a, a lot of it started uh, with Albert Einstein, uh, and before Albert Einstein, from from what I understand, most scientists assumed or were hoping that the universe was eternal, okay? But when Einstein published his Special Theory of Relativity in 1905 and General Theory of Relativity in 1916, um, these theories were stating that the universe was expanding, and, and that's kind of what gets, and, and, you know, over the years, they, they uh, made observations that confirmed his theories, and that's where you get all this starting and the idea of a singularity coming from. Now, uh, you know what is the singularity? From what I understand, it's when you rewind the clock all the way back. Uh, but it's a, its really weird. Supposedly, it's where space-time uh, uh, logic basically breaks down, and, and none of it really makes sense. This—the singularity is supposed to be a, like a, a like a point. So it's not even a three dimension. It doesn't even have three dimensions. It's just like a point with an infinite mass. And beyond, you know, if you're trying to go backwards in time, there is no going, there's no, there's nothing before that point. Um, so it, it's, you know, as a, as a lay person, I, I don't know if I fully understand it, but it, uh, just to give you some examples of how it has been interpreted, um, I use quotes from Paul Davies and uh, Alexander Vilenkin. Now, and, and I think usually you see these quotes in, in uh, On Guard and, and other places. Um, so Paul C. W. Davies is a physicist at Arizona State University. I believe he's still there um, at the time of this recording. But he he's he's been quoted. Um, he says this in uh, in a book called The Study of Time in in an article uh, titled "Space-Time Singularities in Cosmology." He said, "If we extrapolate this prediction to its extreme, talking about the the universe expanding and you, rewinding the clock." We reach a point when all distances in the universe have shrunk to zero. An initial cosmological singularity, therefore, forms a past temporal extremity to the universe. We cannot continue physical reasoning or even the concept of space-time through such an extremity. For this reason, most cosmologists think of the initial singularity as the beginning of the universe. Okay? Now, that quote was from 1978, though, so it's a little old. Um... Another quote I have is from Alexander Vilenkin, uh, theoretical physicist at Tufts University, well-known in uh, cosmological circles. Uh, He says this in a book called Many Worlds in One, The Search for Other Universes. So this is from 2006. It's a little bit more recent. But he says, it is said, uh, yeah, here's his quote. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape; they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Um, and yes, if you if you research the the history of this, um, you'll find now. And I don't want to make it sound like all scientists have always been trying to get around an idea of the beginning of the universe, uh, but it does make sense. I think it makes sense. Whether they have a personal aversion to theism or, you know, thinking that there was like a creator that started everything, uh, regardless of that, you know, scientists are supposed to, pretty much like what we said when we are looking at premise one, right? If they see an effect, they need to find a cause for it. And as scientists, um, there's something called methodological naturalism. The job of a scientist is to find natural explanations for natural phenomena, right? So, Uh, Don't take me to be saying that uh, all scientists were like foaming at the mouth atheists, always trying to get get out of the beginning. But um, but there were a lot of um, there were a handful of scientists that were disturbed by the universe coming to a point and there being a beginning to space and time and a singularity. Personally and professionally, right? So there so there there is kind of a history of scientists coming up with all these models trying to uh, explain explain how maybe there maybe the universe is eternal even though the the even though the universe is expanding um, there's steady- state models that scientists try to come up with so uh, uh, steady state models were big in the 40s um, a steady state model says that the universe is eternal um, and maybe it looks like it's expanding because there's some spot like in the middle somewhere where matter, is just coming out of, uh, is just appearing from nothing. You know, there might be various scientific explanations for that. But uh, steady state models kind of fell out of favor in the 60s. In the 60s and 70s, you had oscillating models. Now, I've read that there are still some oscillating models that are possibly uh, tenable, but um, the oscillating models entail that the universe is eternal because it continually implodes resulting uh, in an infinite series of big bangs, right? So the oscillating model, it's like they, they think that there's a big bang, the universe expands for a while, and then it starts to shrink back in on itself and has maybe like a big crunch, and then the universe expands again and another big bang, so it's, that's why it's called oscillating. And what they're arguing is that, yeah, it might look like the universe had a beginning, but that was just one of an infinite number of big bangs and big crunches. From what I understand, in the 90s, this was kind of fell out of favor um, from findings that the the universe is going to expand forever. Uh, There's been vacuum fluctuation models in the 70s. There's there's chaotic inflationary models that people have come out with in the 2000s. Quantum gravity models. Um, From what I understand, the quantum gravity models are the biggest thing. Um, Scientists are trying to... At the moment, um, you know, you've got quantum gra- uh, quantum mechanics and, and general th- theory of relativity. Uh, the Einstein stuff makes sense out of the universe on a big scale. Quantum mechanics makes sense out of the universe at a very, very macro scale, at a quantum scale. But when you put these two together, they're not working, they're not compatible with each other. So scientists are trying to, figure out ways to, um, to, to unite them and, and maybe find something that, that, that is underlying everything that does unite quantum mechanics and, and, and the theory of relativity. So um, uh, a part of that is they're trying to figure out a quantum explanation for gravity, like a quantum theory of gravity. And the interesting thing is that the quantum theories of gravities, whenever they make tangible theories those are entailing that there is no beginning uh, of the universe. Um, but the problem with that is that none of this at the present moment uh, has any real evidence for it. Like they, uh, like it would take years and years for us to even come up with experiments that could confirm this. Okay. So a lot of these are models. And, and to, for, to my understanding, just in this basic video without going more into the science um, uh, at, at the moment, it, it still looks like, even though there might be different models that could possibly work, there isn't just this one accepted model, and a lot of it's still in the theoretical stage. So at the moment, kind of the biggest thing is that it does seem like there was a beginning to the universe uh, being entailed by, um, uh, 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 by Einstein's theories that keep getting confirmed, okay? So um, if you are new to this concept, you know, I know... Uh, some Christians might get upset because they um, might believe that the Bible entails that the, the world and the universe are only 10,000 years old. Uh, but just so you know, and I'm not saying that's wrong, I'm just saying that contemporary science, Big Bang cosmology, entails that there's something that, uh, if not a singularity, gets really close to a singularity. And when you rewind the clock, it looks a lot like the universe began, all of time and space began at one point, uh, which does seem to confirm, uh, you know, the, depending on how old you think it is, it might, it might uh, go against what you believe. But if you uh, don't hold to a strong opinion on how old the earth is, then it does seem to confirm, you know, saying that God created everything, right? But anyways, we'll get to what the cause is like here in a second. Don't think that I'm saying that the cause must be like God right now, because we still have to reason to that. Premise two uh, also is defended in the second scientific way using the second law of thermodynamics. Okay. Now, if you're like me, <laughs> a non-scientist, if I mention the second law of thermodynamics, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. So I usually uh um I usually read my uh, my very technical definition for it. The second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy of the universe is increasing and that the amount of energy available to do work is decreasing and becoming uniformly distributed. The universe is moving irreversibly toward a state of maximum disorder and minimum energy, okay? The second law of thermodynamics basically says that in a closed system, all of the, uni- all of the energy is eventually going to get used up, if that makes sense. And uh, you are probably very familiar with the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, the example I like to give is, uh, is a cup of coffee or, or tea or cocoa, whatever you like to drink in the morning or late at night. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times I have made a cup of coffee, got all excited, it's gonna have uh, a, you know, a delightful warm sensation uh, early in the morning and maybe get a little bit of caffeine. Uh, but then I start talking to somebody um, and I forget about my coffee then I come back to it and I take a sip and it's lukewarm and it kind of ruins my day I have to warm it up in the microwave but it's just not the same as it as it was it's either too hot or not hot enough it's not it's not that perfect temperature like it is a couple minutes out of the out of the coffee maker that's the second law of thermodynamics at work right there was a bunch of energy in my coffee and as I went off to talk to somebody, that energy dissipates uh, out of the coffee into the surrounding air, and eventually all that energy got used up. Uh, it, it was distributed, right? Uniformly distributed. It doesn't just want to stay in one little place. So it was, it was transferred out into the air. Now, this is actually one of the easiest scientific uh, points to make in this argument. The, the point the the, the way that a, a a theist uses to show that this the second law of thermodynamics entails a beginning to the universe is this: if the past were actually infinite and there was no beginning to the past, so that there there was no beginning to the universe, then um, given the second law of thermodynamics, we would assume that all of the all of the energy in the universe would have already been used up an infinite amount of time ago. If the second law of thermodynamics is a thing, and um, the universe is, you know, if all of the energy in the universe is going to be uniformly distributed, if the past were infinite, that should have already happened an infinite amount of time ago. But, But guess what? That hasn't happened in the universe that we observe because the sun is still burning and because we're all still alive. The universe hasn't reached a heat death yet. And if that's the case, given the second law of thermodynamics, we are forced to conclude that the universe had a beginning because all the, un- all the energy hasn't been used up, which it would have done given the second law of thermodynamics and an infinite past, okay? So that's how you defend the Kalam argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Uh, common sense, not, uh, not very scientific to uh, oppose that, and it's contradictory to oppose that. Two, the universe began to exist, and you defend that saying that there can't be an actually infinite amount of anything in reality. Uh, the past can't be infinite because we wouldn't be here talking about this, because there needed to be an infinite number of events before we started talking about this. And um, the Big Bang cosmology entails this at the at the moment. Um, and the second law of thermodynamics entails that the universe uh, had to have a beginning, or all the energy would have been used up an infinite amount of time ago, Okay. So then we get to the conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a cause, <laughs> and like I said, you might be thinking, "Wow, that's a very underwhelming conclusion. It doesn't seem like it gets to God." Uh, but here's the here's the thing: when you think about all the things that we just talked about, um, it will uh, you can reason to what the cause must be like, like I mentioned before, right? One important concept is that if there had to be a beginning of the universe, you know, premise one says, if something begins to exist, it has a cause. That means that all if the universe has to have a cause, there has to be something that caused it, right? But if the universe uh, entails all of space and time, then the, the cause of the universe can't be in space or time, right? there had to be a beginning to the series of time, that, that begin, excuse me, if there there had to be a cause of the series of time that had to have a beginning, that cause can't be in time. And one thing that that entails is that the cause exists, right? Uh, Because nothing can't cause something. And so, but if this thing exists, it has to have always existed. It can't be caused. It has to be uncaused. This is a logical conclusion of what we've just went over. Uh, because if it had, if the cause of the universe had a cause, then it would just be a part of the chain that we're saying has to have a beginning. So there'd need to be a cause of that. But if all of time and space began, then the cause of all time and space can't have a cause. Okay. Um, so also, like I said, you know, so I, um, if you're listening to this on a podcast, here's our list of things that, that uh, everything we've just covered entails. So like I said, the cause of the universe can't be in time, can't be in space. Otherwise, it would, it would just be something that would be in a series that needs a cause. Uh, and then we would be right back where we started talking about some cause outside of all this. Uh, the cause of the universe needs to be uncaused, beginningless, changeless. All of those things are entailed by uh, uh, concluding that there has to be a beginning to time, right? Because time happens one thing after another, so it can't be actually infinite. Um, the cause has to be immaterial, because if, uh, if all of time and space began, then the cause can't have uh, can't be made of stuff. It can't be changing. It, it can't be in time. Yeah, so the, our, our list says uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial timeless spaceless now one thing since the cause uh, is causing all of time and space to begin from basically nothing right and i mean like nothing physical like the the cause is there but we're saying that the cause has to be immaterial if the if the cause is causing all of time and space to begin then the cause must be unimaginably powerful right And some people argue that to to make a universe come from nothing, you have to be infinitely powerful, uh, but we don't need to go down that road. I mean, I I personally tend to agree, but um, at the very least, we'd have to hold that the cause needs to be unimaginably powerful, right? Now, the kicker to all this is the cause has to be personal, okay? So just, just one more time, let me read the list again. Uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, unimaginably powerful and personal. Sounds a lot like God, right? Now, you might be thinking I'm crazy to say that the cause has to be personal. A lot of people might be like, well, you know, maybe th- there's just like a multiverse out there or something. Now, a multiverse really wouldn't count as, as, our, uh, as our cause that we're reasoning to, uh, that we're concluding, because that would have space-time and be changing. So, um, you would still need a, to go further back into the past and find a, a cause like our list. But some people still might say, well, what? It, why does the cause has to have to be personal? Well, uh, there's two ways about it, okay? Um, the cause is either going to be personal or impersonal, right? And it kind of boils down to the cause is either something that had a choice to create or didn't have a choice to create. Uh, you know, when I, when I talk about this concept, I like to ask people, you know, th- you know, think about what it takes to start a fire. What do you, what do you need to start a fire? Um, you, you, you'll need a, a fuel source, um, you'll need oxygen, and you'll need uh, some kind of energy, some kind of uh, spark, right? Now, when you put those things together, ask yourself, does the fire have a choice in starting? and the answer is no, right? When you when you, you know, uh and I mean in all else being equal, when you have oxygen, a fuel source and a spark or a light whatever to start a fire, the fire doesn't have a choice to to be made. It just is created, right? It just begins. And that is because you there's a mechanical cause to the fire. That's just how mechanical causes work. Once you put all the uh, sufficient and uh, necessary conditions for something to begin, it just will begin because that's just how the rules are. Um, and 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 here's the thing: because the the universe had a beginning, which is something that we are we've already defended and we concluded the universe must have a beginning. This entails that the cause of the universe can't be a mechanical cause. Okay. Because if the cause of the universe were a mechanical cause, then it the, wouldn't have any choice in creating its effects. But if it had the stuff to, if it had what it takes to make a universe, and it's an unchanging mechanical cause, then its effect is also going to be uh, just like it, right? If you have an everlasting, you know, if you take this, uh, take, our, take our causes of the fire, take our fuel source, our oxygen, and our spark, you put those things together from all eternity, you're going to have an eternal flame, right? Because the flame, because those things don't have a choice in making the flame. When you put those things together, it just makes a flame. But if you have this eternal, unchanging cause of a fire, you're going to have an eternal flame, right? It's always going to be burning because there was no choice in it. It was mechanical. But since the Kalam shows that the universe has a beginning, that rules out that possibility of a mechanical cause because the universe isn't eternal. It had a beginning in time. So that just leaves us with a personal cause. The cause had to have a choice to to begin the universe in time. Um, And and all this might just be causing your head to spin, but I'd use kind of a silly analogy, kind of a silly way to try to think of this. Let's say that um, I've been, uh, let's say that I've been standing on my front porch from all eternity, okay? And, uh, you know, and we just argued that it, it would be impossible for me to be standing there from all eternity, but just imagine that I have been. And let's say that from all eternity, I've been standing there screaming at the top of my lungs, just going, ah, you know, for, for all eternity, there was no beginning to it. I've just always been standing on my front porch. However, this would work. I've just always been standing on my front porch, screaming at the top of my lungs. If you ask yourself, how is it? Why has he been screaming from all eternity? You would have two options. Maybe, and let's say these are our two options. Let's say you only have two options. Okay. One option is that maybe I've had, uh, some battery clamps. On, uh, that you would use to you know restart a, a car. Let's maybe there's been a battery clamps on my leg from all eternity. okay? Another option is that somebody has been pinching me from all eternity, maybe grabbing my flesh on my thigh or something and twisting it from all eternity. When you ask yourself which one of those two could it be, it's possible that both of those are both of those are options, right? Uh, now let's say, that, um, I haven't been screaming. Let's say that I've been standing on my porch from all eternity, but one day I start screaming. Okay. Out of the blue, I just start screaming at the top of my lungs, but from all eternity, I hadn't been doing that. Um, but so my screaming began when you ask yourself, okay, well, there's two ways about it. Either there, either he had, uh, um, these, uh, battery clamps on his leg from all eternity? Or was it somebody pinched him? And that's the only two options you have. You can't say that it was the battery clamps, right? Because if those had been on my leg for all eternity, I would have been screaming for all eternity. The clamps don't have a choice of whether they're going to clamp down or not. They're just going to clamp onto my leg and cause me to scream. In this scenario, if my screaming had a beginning, You can't say it was the clamps, the mechanical cause. Your only option, if these are your two options, is that somebody chose to pinch me one day, and that's why I'm screaming. Does that make sense? So what the Kalam entails is that since the universe had a beginning, the cause of the universe can't be a mechanical cause that didn't have a choice because the cause has to be unchanging. If it had what it takes to make a universe, it would have just created a universe from all eternity. So the universe itself would be eternal. But since the kalam concludes that the universe had a beginning, the cause of the universe has to also uh, have has to have a choice to create the universe uh, and create time with a beginning. Um, and and you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense because if God is unchanging, then wouldn't this mean that if God wants to make the universe, God uh, the universe has to be eternal, just like what you're talking about. But um, that's not necessarily the case. If God wants to create the universe with a beginning, then that's just what God is deciding to do. Okay. Um, and, and just because God, uh, just because God is unchanging, this doesn't necessarily mean that everything God uh, decides has to be, uh, uh, everlasting, some kind of everlasting eternal effect. Right. Um, So an example I've heard before is uh, say that Socrates has been running in place for all eternity, right? Um, Or or it doesn't even have to be. Yeah, yeah. well, let's say that Socrates has been running in place for all eternity. Uh, If Socrates has free will, then Socrates running in place for all eternity uh, just entails that from all eternity, he's wanted to run in place, right? He could stop running at any time if he wanted to. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he had no choice in doing it, right? And it's the same way with God. Just because God is unchanging doesn't mean that he doesn't have free will. And I don't have time to go into defending that as much. It's just that just the, the idea of God from all eternity willing that the universe begin in time is not contradictory. Let me just say that. Does that make sense? What we're saying is that from all eternity, God willed that the universe begin in time okay we're not saying that he one day didn't want to do it and then he made the decision the next day we're saying from all eternity God freely chose to create the universe with the beginning of time and that's and that's really uh your only option at this point because you can't say that the universe began from a mechanical cause because that would entail a uh, eternal universe which we just showed can't happen now, not, so not only does it look like we are showing that the universe has a cause that looks a lot like the god of monotheism, this also shows that other worldviews that, that uh, contradict this cause, co- like, say, other worldviews that would entail a different cause or no cause are incorrect, right? So if the Kalam argument is sound, which I believe it is, uh, this would entail that atheism is false, right? Atheism says that there is no cause to the universe. It just exists. Uh, pantheism. So any worldview that entails pantheism, and if you're not familiar with worldview talk, pantheism is the view that the universe is God. And uh, religions like um, Hinduism are often pantheistic. There's, there's many uh, worldviews that entail pantheism, and none of these could be true. Because uh, if if uh, the universe had a cause of itself, then the universe can't be God. Pantheism says that the universe is God. So any, any type of worldview that entails pantheism is false. Polytheism would be false. Because you can only have, um, if, if the cause of the universe is immaterial, you can't really uh, have more than two immaterial things, right? Like, because if it's immaterial, then it's not really going to have anything to set it off from something else. Um, you can't have, and especially especially if you think of polytheism being these finite gods, and, and especially in all these religions that believe that the gods began, right? The, the Kalam argument rules out polytheism because there needs to be this one cause, this one unchanging unimaginably powerful personal cause of the universe, and really all you're left with is monotheism. Uh, maybe you could start doing deism or something like that, but the majority of world religions uh, are excluded uh, from the, the conclusion of the Kalam argument. Really, uh, after the Kalam, if you find it compelling, your options are limited basically to um, Islam, judaism and christianity and anything else that believes that god transcends the universe and created and sustains it okay Uh, so it rules out atheism it rules out buddhism it rules out hinduism it rules out paganism all of these beliefs uh, systems that don't entail a monotheistic god okay uh, and that's why it's so important. You know, the Kalam argument is not uh, proving Christianity to be true. It's just setting the groundwork. That's why this is a step two thing. All right, so uh, we've already gone pretty long, but let's go ahead and, and just mention really briefly some objections to this just to give you an idea of how we would talk about defending this. Um, there's, a, there's a long list of objections to the Kalam, if you can imagine. Uh, one objection to the Kalam is, that, is a scientific objection, saying that space-time, the concept of space-time, entails that time is not successive. Uh, This is kind of a complex objection. One thing i like to mention, though, is that this objection basically only works against the the second philosophical argument, okay? The second philosophical argument was the one saying that um, since time is successive, there can't be an infinitely... uh, uh, long past, so this objection would only work on that, and you could still use the other two, so the the scientific arguments, and you could still use the first argument. Um, but if you're familiar with space time, the this concept of space time, it's the idea, and this comes out of relativity theory. It's the idea that space itself, uh, excuse me, that time itself is a um, is a real dimension. So if if you're looking at my chart here, you know, basically you've, if you look, it's four, it's four dimensional space. You have an up, down, uh, a height, you have a width and you have a depth in three dimensional space, right? Well, space time adds the fourth dimension of time, the arrow of time. And that leaves you with, you know, you can make representations of the earth that look like these, these worms looking things where the, the. The singularity is at one tip, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and looks like a, a weird-looking hat or worm going uh, into time. But what relativity theory entails is that all of this exists right now. The pa- yesterday is just as real as today and, and tomorrow. Okay, it's an it's an interesting concept, and it's and it gets really com- uh, complex. It is something that's just debated. Uh, the existence of space-time is not set in stone, by the way, so I'd just like to point that out. But but also, i just like to point out that, look, this might get around uh, the second argument, but it doesn't uh, defeat the first philosophical argument that, um, that there can't be an actually infinite amount of stuff in reality. So... Um, you know, so it's it's interesting, but it would if they were would argue that the past is act, is actually infinite, then they're entailing that if space that space time itself would be actually infinite, and uh, the first argument kind of takes care of that. Okay, multiverse theory is something people bring up a lot. Now, uh, multiverse theory, the thing about this objection is that it's not really going to defeat the first philosophical argument, uh, excuse me, the second philosophical argument. Actually, it's not going to defeat either the first or the second philosophical arguments, okay? Someone might start arguing for a multiverse, but this w- this is more of a scientific, I mean, it's quasi-scientific. Now, don't be taking me to say that multiverse theorists are doing pseudoscience, but sometimes when you're doing multiverse theory, some of the stuff that they're arguing pro- might be happening it really starts to get a little metaphysical because there, sometimes there's not any direct evidence for it. But um, regardless, there's just two things that I'll say briefly. For one, I'm not a multiverse expert, so I can't speak to the science as much. But again, we could do a future series where we get really in-depth in all this stuff. Uh, but there's, there's two main takeaways. One is it, the multiverse theory wouldn't defeat the philosophical arguments. Those, those are really transcendent. They would cut through this. And it would still leave standing the idea that the past can't be actually infinite, because there'd be that would entail an actually infinite number of events happening before today. But also, I've heard from uh, Christian scientists and uh, other scientists that these multiverse theories, even uh, there's a there's a bunch of them out there, but a, a lot of them, or the, the more let's say the the more plausible ones, still entail that there's a beginning to the multiverse. So they just so this doesn't really defeat the argument as much as it just backs it up another step. Now there's some there's some really uh, there's a lot more there's a there's a lot that's happened since you know I, I, the quotes that I had since 2006 since the 70s. Um, from what I understand, like I mentioned earlier, those quantum theories of of those quantum mechanical theories are entailing that there is no beginning to time. An interesting thing that I've heard is that some of those theories entail that the the universe gets close to a singularity, but then going into the past, um, some of them entail that the, the arrow of time is reversed. So once you get to the, you never actually get to a singularity, you get to something really close to it. And then going further back, it just starts to expand again, but it entails that the arrow of time is reversed. Problem with that is that if the arrow of time is reversed, then that's really not our past. That's somebody else's future. So, that's interesting, but again, I, I, we can't get too far into the science. To um, But the interesting thing is um, that a lot of these multiverse theories still entail a beginning to time itself. Uh, the, the, the multiverse still needs a, a beginning. Um, then you've got some more philosophical arguments from, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of objections to the claim over the years. David Hume is a famous figure who has several objections and and all, and these aren't all necessarily uh, aimed just at the claom but at cosmological arguments in general. One thing he says is that, one thing he said is that he thought an infinite series is possible. You know, it, he would argue that uh, I mean the the in an infinite series in an infinite past like something was happening. So how can you say if, if you if it you know, it's almost the idea that if if nothing if an infinite number of things had to happen before today or today wouldn't arrive then it's almost like saying that then today shouldn't be happening so if you kind of back this up then it's almost like you're saying that nothing should be happening but if there's an infinite series of events then something had to be happening right uh, but this this really just kind of gets it just it's beside the point really okay the point is pick any point in the past there might be an there might be a finite point between now and then but no matter how far back you go, we're still saying that if the past ha- is actually infinite with no beginning, then pick any point in the past, there still has to be an infinite number of events that happened before that. So although an infinite series sounds like a thing, whenever you try to apply it, uh, especially with the concept of time, which is something that happens one step after another, it just doesn't work with reality, okay? Okay. We can think of infinite series, but it, just, it it just can't apply to reality. and that's what the Kalam is getting at. Uh, Hume is also famous for his, uh, his um, skeptical theories. you know. Uh, he argued using his problem of induction that you know, like say premise 1 says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. We think that that's a thing, but he argued that that's inductive reasoning, so you can't ever be hundred percent sure that that's true right? And he argued, for all we know, even though every time you throw a baseball, say, at a window, the window breaks, maybe on the millionth time, if you did it, it wouldn't break. The baseball would hit a window at like maybe 90 miles an hour and just bounce off and the window would be fine. Or maybe it would just go through it. But if you're just using inductive um, observations to uh, to establish the principle of causality, then you can't be a hundred percent certain that your conclusion that the the window is going to break is true. And uh, you know, I mean, that's his, that's his skeptical uh, philosophy. Uh, He actually got made fun of it, made fun of for it (laughs) Uh, in in a, and he actually has a quote um, in a letter that he wrote to someone named John Stewart in 1754. Uh, Hume said, I never asserted such an absurd proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. Okay. So even though he, even, even though Hume has all these skeptical arguments, even he was, was quick to say that he didn't, he wouldn't, uh, he thinks rejecting something like premise one would be absurd. Now, I mean, there's a lot with David Hume and we could go into the history of all his writings, but just really quickly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think even trying to say that there's no way to establish the principle of causality would almost be self-defeating, because you're saying that, the, you know, the principle of causality, effects have causes. But what happens in, in logical reasoning? Usually we think that our conclusion follows from, from effects, right? And the effects are the, us looking at evidence. So we look at evidence, and that, that is part of the, the process of us concluding that uh, what we think is the most logical. But if we don't even believe in cause and effect, then we honestly can't even say that our reasons were caused by uh, evidence. Uh, but anyways, um, like I said, even Hume argued, or even Hume was quick to point out that even he wouldn't uh, want to say that something could arise without a cause. Um, he's also said something similar, and other philosophers have said that maybe the universe as a whole does not need a cause. Um this is that, that objection is aimed more at um, more at other cosmological arguments. You know, it just follows that if the if the past isn't infinite, um, it and and the time and space had a beginning, that there had to be a cause to that. If uh, if you hold to premise one, so uh, Immanuel Kant also is famous for uh, his some of his positions that entail that. Um, the Kalam doesn't work. I mean, there's been so many. Again, I'm just I'm just picking out a couple and, and, and picking on them. <laughs> uh, one major thing that he had was a uh, this epistemological theory um, that uh, there's this noumenal realm, which is the world as it really is, and then there's a phenomenal realm. That's the way the world is it appears to us. And he argued that there's this unbridgeable gap between the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. We, can, we can't know how the world is as it really is, the noumenal realm. We only know how the world is as it appears to us in our phenomenal realm. So we're basically stuck inside our heads and we can't get out of it. The only way that you could know for certain, 100%, that you're, what you view, how you view the world is the way the world is is for you to step outside your head and compare the two. But since that's impossible for us to do, um, we can't be 100% certain uh, with our uh, conclusions about the world uh, from using our senses. Now, uh, now I, I don't take me to be thinking that I can refute um, Immanuel Kant in just two or three sentences. It's a lot more complex than this. But I, w- I believe that ultimately that's almost a self-defeating belief as well. You know, because if, if we can't know the world as it really is, then how does Kant know that there's a noumenal realm? Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's like he's saying, there's this world that we have no access to, and let me tell you all about it. <laughs> you know, if, if we don't have any access to this noumenal realm, then how can you even know that it's there and that we may or may not know things about it? Do you know what I'm saying? So... Um, but also, if you just think about, similar to what Kant is saying, if you really, if you take this epistemological thing to, to entail that we can't know cause and effect, then, like we said, then you're going to be really unscientific. You know, I mean, would Kant stand in front of a bus because he thought that it's, he couldn't be certain that it's going to run him over? He probably wouldn't, right? So we can hold to these skeptical views, but it doesn't really have any practical value. But anyways, we've already gone pretty long. Uh like I said, it'll probably be one of the longer ones. But uh let me just bring back up the, the questions for reflection. But but that's that's how the Kalam is defended and, and maybe just uh maybe to get you got you a little familiar with just a couple objections and how you would answer those. But here's our questions for reflection again. So maybe you maybe you're thinking about these and came up with some answers. If you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, you can maybe uh, Put, put what you think in the comments, um, or you can email me. Uh, at any time, you guys can email me with questions. Um, but here's our questions for reflection again. Which reason for believing the universe began did you find the most compelling? Uh, my personal favorite is, is, uh, is the second argument, second philosophical, by the way. Uh, question two, if Big Bang cosmology were proven false, would that prove the Kalam argument false also? I did mention that in, in the lecture, so you should know the answer. If it were somehow proven that Big Bang cosmology is true and all time and space had a beginning, do you think it would take more faith to believe the beginning was caused or had no cause? Why or why not? I like to bring up that point. You know, if 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 big bang cosmology is true and time and space had a beginning, what takes more faith? Uh, that there was a cause to it or there's no cause? Um, and I'm going to leave you with our our quote from Frank Turek uh, from Stealing from God, page 26. He says, "This created and fine-tuned universe, along with the orderly cause and effect nature of reality, are best explained by an intelligent being with attributes remarkably congruent to the God of the Bible." Um, as always, I just wanted to uh, make a quick plug for my my seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, it's a great school. Uh, a lot of online pro programs, also face to face, of course, but you can get certificates, uh, undergraduate degree, and many graduate uh, Excuse me, many graduate degrees like masters, master divinity, master theology. You can get a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion. Uh, you can get an M.Div. in apologetics, philosophy, all that good stuff. CS has a big emphasis on the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, but you don't have to be a Thomas to go there. Uh, it's an evangelical school. It's non-denominational, but it's it's just a great place. Um, I highly recommend it, especially if you want to go deeper into apologetics. And I uh, don't forget, I forgot to mention this in some of the earlier lectures, but SES. If you go to their website, click on the media tab, and then click on the three. Excuse me, Why Trust the God of the Bible uh, link. And that will take you to a free ebook, a free resource on apologetics. It's a 30 or so play. Uh, it's actually closer to 50 pages, but seven-chapter book that kind of runs you through the the steps to to arguing that that Christianity is true and the Bible is the word of God. Also, don't forget Kingdom Preparatory Academy um, is a great Christian classical school here in Lubbock, Texas. If you are looking for a classical alternative to education, I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. I send my kids there, and uh, we love it. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed this lecture on the Kalam argument. If you have any questions, let me know, and I hope you have a great day. Have a great week.